Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And we are joining you for the week of October 19th in kind of getting into the final countdown for the election. I'm joined by my colleague, Josh Blank, keeper of the calendar and director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And Josh, have you voted yet? Not yet. I'm waiting. I'm watching. I'm watching the wait times. I'm trying to figure out what is what is the optimal time in between virtual learning from my son to take him with me. But you are in capital letters planning your vote. Oh, it. Oh, it's planned. It's planned. I just need to decide an execution time. Uh, I, I think we need to take it easy on language like execution in the current political climate. Well, um, I'm not going. I'm not going to watch <laughs> the polls. I'm just voting. Just voting. Nothing. Just going to go cast a vote or two. Just. Um, just plan- that's why I'm breaking the sun. <laughs> so, so today, what we thought we would talk about along these lines are attitudes about voting in elections. Um, as if you're listening to this, you probably know that a couple of weeks ago, we released the most recent University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll, which included among uh, lots of subjects, a battery of questions about Texans' expectations about not just their who they wanted to win or who they planned on voting for, but about how the election might be executed, what their expectations were about the voting process, uh, where they saw potential problems. And, you know, I, I think, Josh, both you and I, even though this was not our first rodeo with questions like this, were fairly disconcerted with what we found. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we sort of we expanded on a battery that we, we've asked before. So we've asked questions about election threats, uh, you know, particular situations that people might think are you know, serious problems or or maybe they're just there's they're somewhat there. They're little problems or they're not really problems at all. And those are things that you kind of imagine. We ask about, you know, how serious a problem votes being counted inaccurately is or people voting who are not eligible or eligible voters being prevented from voting. We talk about misinformation being spread on social media, all is basically potential threats to the election. And we've asked these questions before. So we know, you know, to some degree that, you know, these attitudes that these are problems run pretty rampant. Uh, but, you know, really the last time we, we sort of did this extensively was back during the 2016 election when we were talking about this a lot. We've done some little, some little half measures in between, and then we'd sort of rolled out the full battery again. And yeah, I mean, even though we knew that people thought that these things were problems, you know, the, the magnitude and the intensity of it is kind of Amazing. So you know, again, you know, people could say it's an ex- you know an extremely serious problem or it's a somewhat serious problem. If we just look at these these issues that people are thinking about going to this election, and the share of Texans who say they're extremely serious, sixty two percent of Texans say that misinformation spread on social media is extremely serious, and that's the only sort of bipartisan result. Democrats and Republicans agree about it at the same rates about that one. Votes being counted inter- inaccurately, forty three percent of Texans think that is an, an extremely serious problem. Literally, the votes being inaccurately counted. Nothing about, you know, fraud per se or anything else. We're just talking about like, can you, you know, say, oh, that's a check for Joe Biden. That's a check can, for Donald Trump. Can you Trump. count them right? Can yeah. you count, right? 
40% think that people voting who are not eligible is going to be an extremely serious problem. 40% also think that eligible voters being prevented from voting is going to be an extremely serious problem. For government election interference, 39% extremely serious. People voting multiple times, 38% of Texans think this is an extremely serious problem, which tells me that a lot of voters have never tried to vote twice. Uh, an increase in people voting by mail, 33%, so that would be extremely serious. And then people not voting due to COVID, 32% of people thought that that would be a serious problem. And that's actually, I think that's in line with other parts of the poll where we ask people, is it safe to vote? And ultimately, I think more than three quarters of, of registered voters think it's safe to vote in person at this point. Uh, and so that's not surprising. But Although that's gone, although that's gone up. That's gone up. And part of it is, you know, since, has that gone up? June. Well, and, you know, and sort of safe how safe, like medically safe. And then there's also like safe, like getting your vote counted. Right. And so as 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 concern over mail in voting has gone down, I think the extent to which people think that in-person voting is is unsafe is kind of decreasing almost as a justification. But that's another story. So ultimately, you know, yeah. the thing that's sort of striking about this, and I think we talked about this. I mean, I've said this to you before. We've asked a bunch of questions about discrimination in the past. You kind of, it's easy to break these things down and say, you know, well, who's the most discriminating group or, or who do Republicans think is most discriminated against or who do Democrats think is most discriminated against or whatever. But ultimately you look at a battery like that and you kind of can't come away with, without thinking like, man, this must be a lot of discrimination going on because people see it everywhere. And it's sort of the same thing with this in a lot of ways, which is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at sort of Republican tropes about, you know, voter fraud unfounded though they are, or democratic concerns over voter suppression, ultimately, it doesn't really matter who you look at, they see problems with the system. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that what's interesting about this then is that, you know, there's, is that there's so much structure on a partisan basis here is that, you know, as you go through that laundry list of all the items we asked and you know, anywhere from basically a third to, you know, a little over 40, 43% think one of those multiple things is a problem. Not everybody thinks the same things are problems. And in fact, in most cases, members of, if, if members of one party tend to think it's a problem, members of the other party don't, right? So for Democrats, the big problems are eligible voters being prevented from voting, foreign governments and, and other bad actors interfering in elections and people not voting due to the virus. I mean, democratic, you know, demo, you know, the range of democratic belief that, that those are serious pro or extremely serious problems ranges from 48 uh, to as high as 57 percent with and the 57 percent is foreign governments interfering. But the Repu but Republicans cluster around a completely different set of ideas or you know perceived problems that Democrats don't see as a problem. So, fifty-five percent of Republicans say that that people voting multiple times is an extremely serious problem. Only eighteen percent of Democrats think it is an extremely serious problem. Without going through all the numbers, we'll publish the graphics on our website proximate to the to the posting of the of the podcast recording. You see this pattern, as you said, other than the social media threat throughout this whole battery of questions. Um, and then interestingly enough, as we, you know, we talk about independence, independence in almost all of these are almost exactly in the middle. It's, not, it's almost uncanny when you look at this. I mean, you know, the only thing where, you know, in, in a couple of these counts, they independence edge a little bit closer to Republicans and a couple they edge a little bit closer to Democrats. But overall, independents are kind of scattered across the partisan universe, which, A, makes sense to me, and B, tells me that actually the polling 
is, you know, that the, the, our samples is, in this battery are working pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with in that. Terms, I mean, in terms of all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is sort of one of these really interesting things like, I mean, you know, and we haven't really talked about it too much in this sense, but as a, as a policy matter, you know, and if you listen to the discussion going on right now, clearly, you know, policymakers could address people's concerns about the election system. And I think what's interesting about this is this isn't really, you know, I mean, what's striking to me in some ways now, I mean, look, it's not striking because it's political. And I mean, like, I know the answer to why this has happened, but ultimately, you know, what strikes me about this is there's clearly like room for good faith efforts to basically try to improve, you know, the system overall, if you think about it, right? I mean, we've sort of talked about this, but if you imagine pairing proposals together, you know, let's say, you know, online voter registration on the one hand with like, or I actually, I prefer this one, like, you know, strict voter ID on the one hand, which we already have in Texas with the automatic provision of an ID to every registered voter. I mean, you could do that and say, hey, look, if you really want to make the process extremely well monitored, why don't you just do that? <laughs> right? You yeah. could. We should, we should give some credit to our senior colleague, Brian Jones, who we talked yeah. to about that recently and was really promoting that idea, which has been out there, but interestingly, given political culture in the United States and certainly in Texas, you know, you don't hear the suggestion of an official universal voter ID, state issued voter ID very much because you get pushback, I think, from, from, you know, the sector of the electorate that are, they're very nervous about federal life, federal authority and the idea of, you know, a national ID card. Yeah, but even a state level, I mean, I think the thing about that is for most of those people, I mean, I agree, there is definitely going to be that resistance, but it's also how is this different from a, a driver's license or a concealed carry permit for that matter? Ultimately, it's the same information the state already has available to it. So it'd be interesting to see how this goes. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I think for everybody, you know, these attitudes are leading to, you know, I mean, as serious and terrible as, as these attitudes are, especially again, given that there's very little, well, actually I'll say, almost no systematic evidence of voter fraud. And I would say, you know, to the extent that there's evidence of voter suppression, it's it's more mixed uh, and a little bit more complicated, I think, to unpack in a short, short time span here. But ultimately, this isn't even in some ways the worst aspect of the results we found, right? Yeah, no, it's not. You know, I think probably the, you know, the most disconcerting piece of this was, you know, when we asked people whether they trust would trust the, the the effect of the presidential election you know and we'll break it down but you know the headline is that when you ask people individually will you respondent trust the result of the presidential election 60 percent couldn't simply say yes right and that's one of those things like and maybe you know part of me is like thinking to myself am i getting old like, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, you're, just for our listeners, if you can't tell, Jim is older than me. We sometimes make references to this in the podcast. But I think to myself, you know, is this just like a, a fact, like a facet of getting older that all of a sudden, like I used to think that doctors knew, like real doctors, not doctors like us, like medical doctors, like they know everything. And then you go and you start getting some medical care and you're like, well, they're doing their best. You know, they're guessing, right? And I kind of agree. You grow up thinking like, well, you know, we have this election system. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. And we trust it, you know, better than a lot of other places. Am I just crazy? Like, was I just thinking that because I was a kid or or is this like a, a drastic change, like from your perspective? Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, we've been talking about eroding faith in the system and you look at the national numbers, you know, my recollection of that is that if you look at the long time series going back, you know, at least through the mid 60s, early 70s, you see a gradual decline with, you know, a little bit of a bump. But I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that we are in 
new territory right now. And the question is, you know, are we are we passing through something that we're going to come out of or are we passing into something that we're not? Mm. And to me, that is like, I mean, I think without a doubt, you can't look at the results we got on this question in which there is a bipartisan. I mean, you know, it's interesting, you know, we, we've been saying that the attitudes that say that social media pose an extremely serious problem for the election were the only thing that that people there's bipartisan agreement on. But there's also bipartisan agreement on the fact that people aren't tr- going to trust the presidential election. If you break down the number of people that said that they would trust the outcome of the presidential election, regardless of who wins, broken down by party, 45 percent of, of Democrats say they'll support it. Thirty nine percent of Republicans 33% of independents. And then if you go over and look at the people that outrightly say they're not going to trust it, 11% of Democrats, 15% of independents, 15% of Republicans. So actually, part you know, there's not a lot of partisan difference in the erosion of faith in the system. And, you know, that's that, you know, I think it's a problem. And I think it's a problem that has reached that we that's reached critical mass. And I, you know, Anecdotally, and, you know, we saw this, you know, in another item indirectly when we asked, do you mm-hmm. think other Americans will accept the, re- the result of the election? And we saw similar results. In addition to that, anecdotally, I'm pretty struck by the number of conversations that I'm having with people in the system, outside the system. Just this morning, people from the diplomatic community from outside of the United States who are asking about whether there's going to be civil unrest in the country uh, in in the weeks after the election. And I think that there's a creeping assumption that I think is related to this that we're going to. And for people of more liberal or progressive sensibilities, there's worry about you know militias and and activities like that from the far right, you know, going into the cities and pro and and taking armed action in response to this. And and this is being cultivated, I think, by much of the coverage. But, you know, for conservatives, there's a sense that if Trump wins, you know, liberals and progressives are not going to accept the legitimacy election. And that, you know, and that plugs into pre-existing attitudes about about the protests and, and the incidents of, you know, the, the incidents of violence that we saw, you know, during the summer in uh, in the sort of anti-racism protests. And I think the this is more widespread than I've seen it. I think it's more widespread in the empirical data. And it's certainly more widespread just anecdotally, particularly among people that are close to the process mm-hmm. uh, and people that are engaged seem very worried about this. Yeah, you know, listening to you talk about it, I mean, it does, it, you know, two things. I mean, one, I think, you know, the more I think about this result and even just sitting here talking about it, it, it is in some ways, you know, one of the most jarring and maybe one of the most, you know, surprising results we've gotten in this. And it's not just in, in a couple different ways. I mean, first listening to you, you know, sort of kind of go back over that. I do think about, you know, on the one hand, this idea, you know, let's say on the right that Democrats will never accept, you know, a Trump you know, Trump's victory. And I mean, it's hard to remember what happened four weeks ago, let alone over the last four years in some ways, but like, it does go back to a common sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a trope, but I will for now, which is that, you know, basically that's what the impeachment hearings were all about. It was all about Democrats and liberals not accepting 
the president's mm-hmm. legitimate win. I think that 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 you know that argument is coming up again around the Supreme Court that essentially this is another example of Democrats not accepting you know the fact that voters elected Donald Trump and elected a Republican Senate and it's their you know their will to to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And so this is sort of a common you know sort of understanding. I go back to the other side and I think you know we've, we've talked about this, but you know Donald Trump was was questioning the you know the integrity of the election process while winning. Yeah. I mean, he won. He won the election and said not only while know, winning, was, yeah, after he won, after he had won, <laughs> basically that you know not only was the process rigged before, but after he won, you know, the process was still somehow fraudulent. You know, he would have won by so much more was basically the argument. And you know, it's one of those things. I think you know, having been here in Texas for a while and having listening to these these arguments about you know the election system and voter fraud, it's always been much more active on the right. Uh, it's been much more active among Republicans calling to question the integrity of the election system and really highlighting the need for electoral reforms that will, you know, tighten the electoral process in a way that, you know, is being said will increase, you know, the integrity of the process. And so what's so surprising about this, and we, we've written about this now, but I mean, it's really standing out to me. I mean, what's so surprising about this is not just the 60% of, of Texas voters who won't accept the uh, results of the election, but now the fact that, you know, faith in the system long sort of actively being eroded among Republicans by Republicans is now impacting Democrats. Now, we can't say exactly why that's the case. Is that Donald Trump? Is that years of new laws? I mean, we talked about before. Is this because after 2013, when the Supreme Court invalidated the part of the Voting Rights Act that allowed states to basically engage in new uh, voter laws and restrictions with less oversight? You know, do Democrats now see this as being sort of, you know, sort of Republicans' efforts as, you know, tainting the election system? I don't know. But I would, but I think, you know, have I, had I not thought about it real hard, and really, you know, maybe I didn't, you know, the share of Democrats who now look like Republicans on this question is is pretty striking. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and it's, but 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 we you know, but then we get in this position where I mean, you know, we haven't done, you know, and I haven't seen statistical analysis on this, but I mean it's a it's a pretty plausible argument that as Republican, you know, elected officials find fewer impediments because of the invalidation of of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and Shelby v. Holder, as Republicans, because of that, find themselves, frankly, less impeded because they are literally now without federal oversight when they change election laws, that there have been a fairly sustained pattern of efforts, as you say, in the name of election integrity, to prevent the expansion of the opening up of the voting process to both obstruct any efforts to make it easier to vote and to implement stricter enforcement of laws that exist and to test the boundaries of new laws that, you know, whatever the rash, the public rationale, their effect is to make it harder to vote. I mean, if you're reducing the number of places where you can go vote, if you are making it harder to stay to keep re- to stay registered, if you're making it harder for people to get registered, and down the line, I mean that has an identifiable effect on, pardon the phrase, the calculus of voting, and I mean that is what it is. Yeah, and it's you know, hard. And, and the and if the output is that you know we see a lot more you know more interest in election and only gradual increases in voter turnout. I mean, the argument is is a pretty plausible one. Now the devil's in the details and but I've not, you know, I've not seen a particularly compelling alternative explanation. 
Yeah, I mean, just since we're speculating now, I mean, I was looking at some numbers today, you know, and thinking about this upcoming election and, and you know, and part of, you know, it, 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 it relates to this conversation and that, you know, it's hard not to look at sort of what's gone on in Texas and then this, you know, over the last number of years with respect to voting laws and this set of attitudes and kind of wonder what the end game is. Because ultimately, yeah. you know, if, 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 if you have a, I mean, ultimately, let's say we're going to keep a democracy. So we're still going to let people vote and let's say we're still going to try to let most people vote. Okay, you know, because obviously historically we haven't always done that, but we're kind of at a point now where we're in general, yeah, all else equal, you probably have you know the opportunity to vote, um, you know, and part of what you think, you know, what you, you know, if you think about all these laws that Texas has passed, you know, really since twenty eleven to date, you know, they've been found by trial courts at multiple times to either over, be overstepping their bounds and either discriminating, you know, basically inadvertently or on purpose. Both both have been found at various points in time. So a law could be invalid because yeah. it happens to discriminate. Discriminatory or, in either intent or effect and therefore invalid. Right. And so ultimately, you know, the, what, what, what Democrats and sort of, you know, uh, the people most concerned about voting voter suppression, you know, would say is, is this is basically an attempt to turn away Democratic voters who in most cases are, are non-white younger voters for who the process is going to be more challenging for a number of reasons. And it depends on the law. But generally speaking, that's that would be that would be true. And you go and you look at sort of the, you know, the demographic, you know, the preferences of voters in the state. And, you know, part of the problem I think that Republicans are facing, not to say that these laws are 100 percent politically motivated, but given that politics motivates any law, you know, is that if you look at the under 40 population, you're looking at a largely Democratic population. If you look at the over 40 population, you're looking at a largely Republican population. And that's going over the last couple of election cycles. Similarly, if you're talking about the under 40 population in Texas, you're talking about, you know, a majority non-white population in a state that's becoming majority non-white, or it's already majority non-white, but the electorate is getting increasingly majority non-white. And again, they look like mirror images of each other. If you look at the preferences in our most recent poll of, of white versus non-white voters for Donald Trump uh, versus Joe Biden, on the one hand, and then, you know, again, for non-white voters for Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, they're mirror images of each other. Since non-white voters are showing much more support for Joe Biden, white voters are showing much more support for Donald Trump. And this also relates to age, it relates to access, it relates to all these things. And ultimately, you know, just as a just as a matter of politics, I don't really see how this helps Republicans beyond a few election cycles, assuming we still have a democracy. Just to, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, so I think there, you know, there and there's two things I think to, you know, the kind of footnotes to that in a way. One is that I think they're one of the advantages of the litigation, all the litigation around this, particularly around redistricting and around voter ID, is that we have a pretty extensive public record of the rationale of map makers and legislators who were bill law, who were, you know, authored this legislation, in which, you know, because they are at great, they're going to great lengths to not appear to be racially discriminatory because of the lower bar on that and and the you know the the tripwires on that that is it's illegal right. are very quick to admit no we weren't doing this for racial or we weren't doing this for racial reasons we weren't discriminating we were just doing it because it's you know it's partisan advantage and that's fine and that's what we should be doing so i think that's why when i say you know at a certain well, level you know, the speculate, you know, you're only speculating so much when you have a pretty extensive documentary record in which people have been backed into saying, 
we've done this for partisan advantage. And as I remind my, you know, my Democratic friends all the time, this didn't start in no. 2003. No. If you go back to 1990, you know, I would, and I think we've talked about this on this podcast, but it's worth remembering, go back to 1990 and look at the, at the maps that the Democrats drew to preserve the period of Democratic hegemony in the state when it was already eroding. You know, mm -hmm. Democrats were seeing the writing on the wall and they wrote maps that became textbook illustrations of gerrymandering. I mean, there's just absolutely no doubt about the fact that some of the districts, for example, in in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, you know, showed up as examples nationally of in and well, you know, one whoever the that there's a think tank award for the most you know creative read extreme gerrymandering that the maps that year won. I was just kind of reviewing some of that history for something else. So, you know, this is not just picking on Republicans. It's talking about the fact that we have always had a system in which, you know, as you and I are like broken records on this, election and voting rules are, you know, they're 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 you know, they're political fair game essentially, but within bounds. Well, so the way that I'm thinking about it is, have we gone, have we somehow passed into a different territory in which the regular rules of the game now have had a corrosive effect over time? And is there anything we can do to reverse that? Because, you know, when I look at, you know, and, and is this another instance, you know, in which we're asking, say Donald Trump loses and leaves office. Not loses Texas, but loses the election. Loses okay. the election overall and leaves right. office. What are the general attitudes going to be about this among elites and elected officials afterwards? Are we going to double down on this conflict and further the corrosion? Or is there going to be some level of macro level systemic awareness that maybe we need to repair some of this now, you know? Well, you know, my expectations are, are not tend to not be very high for our yeah. elected officials. But I also, you know, would like to think that just as we were at, or we are at an, you know, we, we're seeing new lows that are catalyzing a lot of people's thinking about this, that there might be enough out there for people to, you know, for there to be enough people that will meld their self-interest with some kind of systemic interest and address this, this problem directly. Now, maybe it's not addressable, I, you know. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, you said the word bounds or boundaries a couple of times there. And I mean, I yeah. think, you know, that that's ultimately, you know, there's a couple of bounds and boundaries that I think are important here. I mean, one, with respect to what you're just saying, you know, ultimately, I think the attitude environment that we're describing here in which partisans of both sides think the election system is extremely problematic, but think so for different reasons, which has now led, again, partisans of both sides and independents to be weary of the election outcome that we're about to have. You know, ultimately, that 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 has bound, you know, in particular, you know, the governor here in some really notable ways. And ultimately, the governor initially said, OK, I'm not going to expand mail in voting, but I'm going to expand early voting. I'm going to allow you to drop off your mail in ballot early. Right. And basically, since then, he has taken incoming fire from his party up until like the minute we're talking still and we'll continue to. Because yeah. ultimately, you know, given, again, this attitude landscape that's been, you know, really fostered by elites, right? Where again, Republicans think that voter fraud is a rampant problem throughout the electoral system. You can't as a as a Republican elected official, especially an executive elected official, go and then make it easier to vote. 
ultimately that just flies in the face of what your voters believe. Now, how long do they hold on to these attitudes? How long does this continue? I mean, the, I mean, as you said, does Donald Trump leave office and all of a sudden, you know, this is over? I don't think so. And I think that's going to make it really challenging, uh, you know, again, especially for Republicans to come to the table for any sort of election reform. And I think Democrats are going to have a hard time trust, you know, I think trusting the other side and coming together for election reforms. But the other bound I think about, you know, also, as you mentioned, you know, the, the line crossing, how far we've gone. And you said, you know, it's true. It's totally, it's, you know, the, the courts have ruled it's okay to like make electoral maps based, you know, on partisanship, basically on party. Like right. this is politics and we don't touch politics. The problem comes when the parties start to get so sorted by race. And we're not there, but ultimately when you're talking about, you know, drawing district, let's say, drawing a district based on where all the Democratic voters are, you know, in inner city Dallas. Well, you know, you start to talk about race. Ultimately, like, you, you know, that those those, yeah. those two conversations are not separate. And so what I what I worry about, you know, in a couple of ways is one, you know, at what point does, you know, what time, what point does the political line and the racial line cross in which we just say, hey, look, these aren't different enough to say that politics, you know, the party is a reason to do this. But I also know that what we're talking about then is we're talking about a country which we're kind of, you know, I mean, this is sort of the scariest part of this at the tip of where, you know, you basically have racially oriented parties. And that's, you know, I don't think that's a good thing. You know, in the sense that, you know, normatively speaking, I think big tent parties, lots of ideas, you know, maybe different different assumptions about how society works. That's fine. But ultimately, you know, I think the idea of parties where race is a large, you know, is a big factor in describing who is a member and who is not. And then partisans making, you know, quote unquote, partisan laws to affect the process, you know, but we're getting somewhere a little scary. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, we've not succeeded in really confronting that, you know, in the legal system, let alone in the legislative system. And we, you know, we rely, you know, at the state level we're you know, as well as at the national level, but focusing on state politics for a minute, I mean, we, you know, you rely on, you know, the, the purpose of legislative bodies, one purpose is to, adjudicate those kinds of severe differences. Mm -hmm. And we've not been particularly good at that in these kinds of issues, uh, certainly in recent years. And, you know, I wonder if a more competitive system makes it harder or easier to do that. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure either. I mean, I think, you know, it creates opportunities, but you have to have the right people there, frankly, with leadership skills and a certain perception of risk and understanding of risk and, and attitude toward risk, I guess, that is makes them willing to to risk those things. We have not seen that much recently in in leadership in the state. I think before we we move on too much further with this, let's let's talk a little bit about early voting before we sure. run out of time. Early voting is the big story, um, mainly because there's a lot of it. Yeah, um, and right. and people are trying to sort out and and. Figure out what it means, probably prematurely, but you know that's the the game we're in, and that's the that's the environment. Um, but the early voting numbers have have been notable, and what do you what are you making of them? Well, I mean, I think you know first and foremost, I'm just looking at you know the overall size. I mean, the number of people who voted so far, I think is uh, you know I think there's a lot of things that you can do to to overinterpret early voting numbers. So I just want to start with something simple, which is. I think after the 2018 election and, and the turnout we saw, you know, there's a, a big discussion that was not even a big discussion, but a really insidery discussion that was ongoing that basically said, hey, so are we going to have 10 million votes in 2020? And, you know, it was sort of kind of just out there, not sure. Look, we're going to we're going to have 10 million votes 
(laughs) Just let me just say that right now. We're already at like probably probably by today, we're probably around three or something. And we still have two weeks left of early voting of the election. Um, You know, beyond that, I'm not really sure how much more there is to say about it. I mean, what you can do is you can go and people do this and they write reports. You can look inside the numbers. You can see who's voted. You can see what their voting history looks like in the sense of, you know, have they voted in Republican primaries? Have they tended to vote in Democratic primaries? Are they, are they mixed? Have they voted in no primaries? That kind of stuff. And that kind of gives you a little bit of like the tea leaves to start to say like, oh, what, what are the partisans doing? But the problem with that, of course, is, you know, number one, uh, I mean, the, the main problem with that really is that one, you don't know anything about the unaffiliated people. We can assume that the people who voted in four Democratic primaries are probably voting for Joe Biden. The people who voted in four last Republican primaries probably voting for Donald Trump. You know, the third who aren't affiliated in some way, I don't know what they're doing, number one. I mean, I, I have guesses based on polling, but that's about it. Uh, and number two, you know, the, the partisans approach these things differently and different voting groups approach electing differently. So I think what we've seen so far is we've seen the hardcore voters turn out in that first week. It's a lot of people who voted in the last four Democratic primaries or the last four Republican primaries or the last three. Ultimately, these are people who are going to vote no matter what, right? And so the question now is, you know... And they're, and they're enthusiastic and they're showing up. I mean, a lot of these people showed up like the instant they could. Yeah, they showed up the instant they could. And so ultimately, you know, is, is this level going to continue, you know, every week or, or really, you know, are we seeing... History basically- suggests not. Probably not, right? I mean, probably what you could say is, hey, whoever would have voted two weeks out on the first day of early voting voted three weeks out on the first day of early voting. We'll probably see a little bit of tail off. The other thing that we know from our polling uh, is that, you know, more Republicans are going to vote or planning to vote on Election Day in person than vote early, whereas Democrats are overwhelmingly planning to vote early or by mail. And so right. this is going to create, you know, again, a, a pretty big shift in our understanding once we start to get in actually those those Election Day numbers. So to me, you know, I would say... The main takeaway is that, you know, is kind of something that we already knew was going to happen, but maybe I'll reframe it and say, despite the pandemic, I still expect us to see extremely high voter turnout for Texas. It'll probably still be below the national average would be my guess. But ultimately, you know, right now, Texas is, uh, from what I've seen, Texas is contributing a huge amount of votes just even nationally. If you just sort of say who's voted so far. Texas is really, you know, up there, but it's a big state. So you kind of expect. Yeah, I mean, we would expect that given given our share of the overall vote. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I think that you know, we should also give a nod to, you know, the data. I mean, that that most people are using if they're not do if they're not crunching the data file or so. Uh, Derek Ryan, Republican consultant from Texas, uh, does, you know, a huge public service that I'm, you know, I'm sure is good for his marketing, but I, I think it can't be worth the time that he puts into us in, in parsing this data every day. So hat tip to Derek Ryan for Mm -hmm. his mailing list and the way that, you know, he stays up late and and get and pushes this data out to everybody for free, um, Mm -hmm. which is nice. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that as we watch this and we see on one hand, you know, comparable shares of Republicans and, and Democrats. The composition of the early voting population so far is, you know, as of yesterday per Derek's data, you know, about 30% of the people that turned out were Republicans, about 30 were Democrats, slightly more Republicans and Democrats, but a much larger share of of the the total that showed up last time have already showed up, suggesting, as you say, we're going to see a lot more voters overall if the pattern is even proximate to what we've seen in the past. So I think you well, have to expect there's going to be a lot more voters. Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, for 
people aren't aware, I mean, ultimately, because this data is available, the, the campaigns, they know who hasn't voted yet, right? So if someone like, you know, again, Derek Ryan is going and looking and, and seeing who has voted and what their history is, ultimately, the parties, uh, the candidates, the various organizations that are trying to mobilize voters know who hasn't shown up yet. And so, yes. you know, if they think that you're a reliable Republican or Democratic voter, you're going to be hearing from somebody soon if you yes, haven't there are, already. Yeah, yeah, we should say that, you know, and again, we should, we should, you know, particularly given the discussion that we've had today, this does not mean that anybody knows how you voted, but it right. is public knowledge if you voted in the past and if you voted yet this time. And so, you know, that this data then, you know, feeds into more voter targeting and, you know, expect to get more texts if you haven't, you know, and, yeah. and those texts will not stop until you vote. So that's maybe another reason if you're one <laughs> of the, the people thing. that's voted a lot in the past and you're sick of getting text messages from all of the campaigns, go vote. And at least some of those will stop. And if they don't stop, you know, you'll know who's not keeping track uh, in terms of candidates and campaigns. So on that, uh, we will call it a day. We will be back next week. Yet another week closer to the election. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, our production crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks again to Derek Ryan for his data. And we'll be back next week for another Second Reading podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.